you are so skilled, you are the best in the world at what you do, that you don't necessarily need mm. that exact plan. You need to know where it is you're going, what it is you're heading for, and what it is you're going to do. But things are going to change around it. So just have faith in yourself and who and what you are. And that is important. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to Lost and Searching, previously known as the Mindful Leader Podcast. Here in Season 2, we're focusing on the theme of stress and breakdowns. And in that kind of vein, today we'll be speaking with a man named James Elliott. Now, James has a wide, wide array of experiences within the kind of physical uh, and health industries. So for example, the kind of armed forces, as well as coaching athletes. And that's what a lot of his experience and background is in. But he became very interested in the brain and how the brain works, the mind works, and why people are the way they are, the way they make their decisions. So he went and qualified in that, and so today he walks us through so many stats, statistics, figures, and perspectives around how the brain works, the kind of difficulties we have, things like stress and anxiety and what that does to us, and also how we can overcome it, some really practical tips and insights for how to overcome those issues. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that if you enjoy the show, you can really help me out by filling out a survey that I'm running. It helps me out immensely, and you'll be in for a chance to win a giveaway. There's more about that in the description, but without further ado, let's get into this really jam-packed episode. Self-sabotage is our conscious and our subconscious resisting, you know, the conflict between the conscious and the subconscious, and it's that resistance that we are trying to understand and overcome. We help people become aware of how their minds work. What are their default settings? Do they tend to be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic? All of us have the same regrets when we die. All of us have pretty much the same regrets. Why didn't I live truer to my own purpose? Why was I swayed by other people's ideas of what I should do? Many leaders feel that they have to be perceived as bold and strong and courageous. And there's almost this thought that a lot of people have in which they feel they can't show others that they're weak. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. All right. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Your experience is, is a real new one for this podcast. You come from a completely different background to anyone we've spoken to before. So I think just to uh, set the context a little bit, I think it'd be cool for you to tell us a bit about who you are, the things that you do, and and the, the kinds of things that are important to you within the mental health space. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so um, I'm Jim. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a, a fully accredited psychotherapist. I'm also, a, at the moment, I'm a, I'm a corporal in uh, 4th Battalion of Parachute Regiment. I'm also a deliverer of mental resilience and well-being coaching to a wide variety of different clients and organizations, um, including that of professional athletes, including Paralympic rowing team, to a lot of, I deal with a lot of vulnerable veterans, myself having been a soldier uh, in the regulars in the airborne forces for, for 14 years. So I try and make psychology and I try and make the key psychological skills to performance as relatable and as human and as understandable as possible. I kind of speak to people, I use a language 
that I know that they'll understand that I speak to them in a way that I know that they can relate to. And I just, I make myself be as, as human and as open as possible to them to help them sort of better themselves and better their situation, whether that be optimizing performance and some doing some very high level performance or whether that be just improving and finding that fulfillment within their lives. All right, cool. Thank you so much for that, Jim. I'm really, really interested to learn is how you got into that in the first place, right? So what you do is really diverse. And that's something that really speaks to me because I've kind of always been the person who does a whole bunch of different things at once. Where does the desire to do these different things that you do come from? I mean, I think for me, like each one of them has its own origin. So for example, Mm. sort of coaching, mentoring, developing of an athlete for me started when I was at, I went to Colchester Rugby Club to be their strength conditioning coach in 2015, 2016. I had some some real difficulties in my personal life and my mental health. So I was taking a lot of time off of work and just trying to recalibrate myself. I found myself working as a strength conditioning coach for this mm. National League rugby team. And whilst I was still military, still a full time, but they were very understanding of that time required to, to coach. And these guys who just promoted International League, which is a massive step from sort of local league into national leagues. And these young athletes, and some of them have gone on down to professional teams and have had very successful yeah. careers. And they were coming to me and some of them didn't know how to deadlift, didn't know how to squat, didn't know how to bench press, didn't have any kind of, you know, self-belief. So you started from the bottom and I built them up. And then to watch them plow through, you know, teams. I think their first season in National League 3, they finished eighth which is almost unheard of. A lot of the teams kind of just yo-yo up and then and down through National League and locally, but they finished eighth, you know, putting convincing victories against teams that a few seasons ago were in National League one, you know, so real, like, you know, just amazing for these guys. And the effect that that had, the positive effect I had on that club and the positive effect I had on that first team, and I have a bit of a legacy there, has, you know, it really inspired me to make that change and make that difference to people. How did soldiers come involved in that? Well, I went from there and became part of the British Army's first ever tactical parachuting instructors platoon, APGIs. So I became an APGI. So now I was applying the skills I'd learned as a strength conditioning mm. coach, but in a tactical sense to parachuting, things like emotional regulation, anxiety control, teach people how to focus and positive visualization. I began teaching it there. And so then I was realizing the really positive effect I could have on soldiers. So by simply taking some of the elements of sports psychology, which I had no mm. formal training in, no accreditation, it was just stuff I knew from my own performances in high level sport, from my own performances in, under high pressure situations and, and um, sort of elite military training, that I was then applying that to the young lads. And I was right. seeing a far greater effect through mentoring an individual and through helping them develop themselves and develop um, coping strategies for stress and pressure, seeing what an amazing effect you could have. And so it was from that point that I then wrote off to army headquarters and said, listen, I think we should be doing mental resilience and this is what we should be doing. We should be doing peer-to-peer support. Began, um, uh, you know, formal training of myself and then army headquarters got back to me and said, well, perfect, come on then. And I went out of the parachute training school and, and became the second in command of all the British right. Army's mental resilience delivery. And I'm still just a full screw at this point. And I'm learning about psychodynamic theories. I'm learning about adleristic psychologies. Like I'm studying and studying and studying nice. and studying, you know, to become fully qualified in this, getting completely immersed in this world. And I also think it's really important for myself that I remain current, yeah. that I continue to display the fact that I am a mentally resilient individual. And that doesn't just mean 
you know, staying in the reserves and, and swaggering about as a full screw still. No, that means, you know, I've gone and broken world records. You know, we've got right. the world record for the longest game of rugby sevens and the world record for the longest game of rugby tens. They wow. were Guinness world records. I did the unofficial world records as well. Group of us bench pressing and a group of us deadlifting in an hour. You know, the, the most amount that you, that you can do in an hour. So, you know, I've done four world records. You know, I've got wow. more plans. It's important for me to keep displaying this, the key skills of of mm. resilience and and to show that I have got that within me. So I'm not just talking the talk. I'm a bloke yeah. who's gone through it, who's witnessed it, who's got accredited in it, it's got the qualifications in it, but continues to display those behaviours that add to my credibility. Now, is that because you... It's it's almost what I end up reading about and, and hearing about and speaking about with so many people is by doing these things, by by walking our talk, we're able to overcome the the mental limiting beliefs that we have, right? Those self-limiting beliefs. Is it almost the reason that you keep pushing yourself is to work on that resilience? Does that kind of make sense? Is is I'm really interested in to understand why do you keep pushing yourself so hard and what impact do you think that has on you? Oh uh, Yeah, so I, I definitely think that there's... We, there is a great way of challenging your, self, your limiting self-beliefs. Plenty of people mm. believe they can't until they do it. And then even then they don't believe that they can. When we look at uh, sort of attribution theory, you know, what do we attribute our success to? Tells us a lot about who we are as individuals. So people right. who, who attribute their success and their winning, they attribute that to external factors and to luck. Then we tend to find that actually right. they're quite unsuccessful people. While successful people attribute their success to their skill and their effort. So, like, if a, if a, when a, someone who isn't successful mm. wins, you go, well, you know, at the end of the day, the weather was on my side, the referee was on my side, and the op- the opposition wasn't as as bad as I thought it was going to be. I got very lucky. Those are quite unsuccessful people, and so successful right. people are like, I won because I put the time in, I put the effort in. Like, I'm up early every day. I'm going to bed late. Like, I'm exhausted. I'm stressed but I'm doing that so that I know that I can win. So if we then bring that back to physical education, going to the gym, pumping iron, playing rugby, playing a sport, running, whatever it might be, people kind of get to abolish those limiting self-beliefs and get to reattribute their success to themselves when they see that it is them that goes to the gym every day. It is them that eats the right food. It is them that, that trains the hardest. It is them that works more. It is them that develops more because you are in total control. That's why I admire within a, a certain... There's obviously a left and right of arc of that, but it's why I admire people who've kept themselves fit and in good shape up until, you know, even their old age, because there's yeah. nobody's giving that to them. Mm. Like that's hard work, that's discipline. They are attributing their success to their work rate and their effort. Mm. And nobody can take that away. So it is a fantastic way of building that self-efficacy. There is also, of course, the other side of that, which is okay. sort of the dark side of the fitness industry. And it is tend to be like a it is a bodybuilding gym environment specific, generally speaking, kind of thing. Although it does occur in other sports, but but effectively where where performance enhancing drugs are so rife, if you build yourself efficacy right. on going to the gym and what you can do in a gym, you you need to apply that outside of it. Otherwise, you'll get a very very false sense of self in the gym, and mm. and particularly then if, if you're if you are a competing bodybuilder, it is your job to compare yourself to other people a lot. And if you are comparing yourself to other people a lot, you are going to develop a huge amount of insecurity very, yeah. very quickly. But the point is, is that fizz can definitely be used. Exercise, sorry, fizz is obviously the military term for it. Exercise can definitely be used to develop a person's self-efficacy because they attribute their growth, their improvement of fitness, strength, well-being, and aesthetics. They attribute that to their effort and their work rate. 
they believe they can apply that to other places. See, that is really, really interesting to me, Jim, for one very important reason. It sounds to me like there's this really delicate balance between believing in yourself enough to make really cliche way of saying it, but make your dreams reality, right? Believe it so that you can see it so that you can actually achieve it, right? You actually take the action. That is very carefully balanced with seeing it so clearly that it really impacts your ego and you become too attached to it. So that if anything goes wrong, you're always, you know, you're comparing yourself or if something goes wrong, you're looking down on yourself, right? There's a fine balance between the two. With the people that you work with, where do you kind of see that balance, right? How do you maintain that balance so that they're working hard, but they stay resilient when things go wrong? Yeah, no, it it, it does. So I think I think the two the two things to bear in mind with resilience, because it often gets confused, is there is a strong difference between being resilient and being steadfast. And particularly in the military, we tend to find we get that very wrong at times. So we're doing this because this is how we have always mm-hmm. done it. Therefore, this is how we will always okay. do it. That is not resilient. There's no resilience to that. Like resilience does most definitely orbit around the idea of neuroplasticity, which is the ability for the brain's neurons and the neural patterns to be able to reform and change the synaptic connections, effectively change the way that we think, adapt to what to situations and external stresses and stimuli as they present themselves to us. Mm-hmm. Within the military, we don't tend to do that. We will hold the line. Right. That yeah, very yeah. military, hold the line like that. We believe in that, right? That is, mm. but that's not resilience. Like that is just simply mm. marching on, getting to an end state. Despite the fact that everything is broken and, yeah. and an absolute clip is kind of, that's just seen as irrelevant. The fact is we got there. We are resilient. We are tough. No, because actually there's a certain amount of flexibility. Okay. So becoming obsessive over the end goal is something that actually I try and do away with. Yes, we want to see improvement. Yes, we want to get there, but we need to remain flexible in how we do it. Things change, change with them. Understand that not everything is going to go to plan. And actually, when we talk about having a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and a plan D, yeah, that's that's great. But actually, just actually having the self-efficacy and having the belief in yourself that when the plan changes, you will be able to create a dynamic plan to orientate around that, that you are the best at what you do, that you are performing at such a high level, that you are so good, you are such a dynamic performer, you are so emotionally intelligent, you are so skilled, you are the best in the world at what you do, that you don't necessarily need that exact plan. You need to know where it is you're going, what it is you're heading for, and what it is you're going to do, but things are going to change around it. So just have faith in yourself and who and what you are. And that is important. And the other half of this that I teach, which mm. I am very careful about which client I, I talk this through with, because I don't I don't really like doing it too much with the performance athletes that I do, because it is about the end result for them. But we talk a lot about stoicism with others, so particularly like veterans, vulnerable individuals. We talk about stoicism. Now, stoicism teaches us that actually it's not about the end result that matters. It's about doing your bit as best as you can, being in control, what you can control and the only things you can control are your attitude and your effort so don't worry about the the end result and they talk about stoicism it references an archer so if an archer has the best bow or has made the best bow that he can and he's strung it in the best way and he's made the best arrows and he's got the per- perfectly weighted head on the arrow and he gets it into the string and he draws it perfectly and the sight and everything is, is lined up perfectly and he releases that shot and the, the arrow fires through the bow and, it go- and in the last second 
the target ducks and the arrow misses. Right. How should the bowmen feel about that? Well, the bowmen yeah. did everything that they could do to absolute perfection. Therefore, okay. it is irrelevant whether that arrow hit the target or not. They just take pride in the journey. And so I teach that to mm. um, sometimes we fire and it, and it, and it misses. But that's not the point. If you can control your attitude and your effort throughout the duration and make best effort to get there, then the reward Ooh. is the journey itself. Ooh, I absolutely love that point because the one of the biggest and and in a way almost it's going to sound over dramatic but almost scariest things for me is how dead set I used to be on the goals yeah. that I hadn't even set. Right. If that makes any kind of sense, right? I think it's I I noticed that it's become so common for us to say I'm reaching towards yeah. an end goal where I'm better or or just you know something really vague like that but we haven't set ourselves an end goal so we're focusing on some really vague concept of being better than we are now which means we're never satisfied and it also means that our focus is entirely yeah. in the future it's not on the present almost whatsoever yeah. but really the present is the only thing that's guaranteed to yeah. us right we can choose to be satisfied now we can choose to be happy now we can choose to be doing our best like you yeah. described in the now but we are not guaranteed tomorrow yet we only really focus on tomorrow yeah i mean that's that's one of the main things that we deal with with performance anxiety is they become so overwhelmed with this end result and so overwhelmed with getting over that finish line first that that, that it eats away at their ability to perform in other aspects so like you know for example with the rowers you know talk about the rowers like how you get into that boat how you line up at the start line, how you breathe, how you grip the oar, how you eat with each stroke right. what you do, and yeah. how you move in the boat is what's going to get you to that finish line first. Panicking about getting to that finish line first is not going to get you there. But staying in the present moment, breathing, what can I control? Well, in the here and now, well, your attitude and your effort. Put your effort into the right things. Put your effort into how I'm going to hold the oar. Put your effort into are my shorts done properly? Put your effort into, are my boots done properly? Am okay. I shutting? All of those things. That's what you put in the effort. Yeah, okay. because right. that's what gets you to the finish line. I very dramatically, which is very much how I, how I live my career. I, I didn't tend to do little injuries. I did big injuries, you know, like I didn't, you know, I didn't break a finger, but like I, you know, I was in hospital, you know, I didn't mess about. And so I very dramatically came off of special forces selection in that, the infamous one with the heat where the people sort of had their heat stroke and died. And I just always remember one of the, one of the sort of best lessons that would constantly get repeated to us by the, uh, by the designated staff of the SAS, which was, mm. which is we just do the basics. Well, we're not after people who are going to re re recreate mm. the Iranian embassy siege tomorrow. We're not after that. Mm. What we're after is, is you do the basics. Well, like if we tell you to be yeah. somewhere at eight o'clock, you're there at zero zero seven fifty five with the full equipment, clean, ready, good to go. We're not asking the world of you, we're asking the basics of you. Because if you can get the basics right, you can move on to whatever. Like I was, you know, some of the guys at Colchester were doing sprint training. And some of them were like, you know, like running hundred meters in under eleven seconds kind of rapid. And and you yeah, but you could do it faster. You could do more. You're trying to reach this level of, of speed and, and, and agility, but we have to get there by doing the basics well. Teaching people who were really good Olympic lifters, but actually we're going to start again with deadlifts. We're just going to start at the basics because if you get the basics right and you can focus on getting the tiny little things right in the moment, you'll get to that end result. 
And so that's what we then started practicing, say, for example, in the changing room with, with the rugby teams I've worked with. All you've got to do is just do your boots up. That's all you've got to do. Just do your boots up as best as you can. Not too tight, yeah. not too loose. Perfect. Your socks. How high are you rolling your socks? Where do you want them? Mm. Right, well, let's get a bit of tape then underneath the lip of the mm. sock. Let's hold that sock in place. You think these things are silly. Like you're a performance coach. You should be worrying about the score. I don't care about the score. I care about the individual doing the basics well. Because once every individual is doing the basics well, that is when the tries come. Not worried about the massive performances. And, and so we talk about resilience. Resilience is not one great act of, of courage or one great act of performance. It's not a single great act of, of bravery. It's none of those things. Like resilience is built upon a series of positive habits. It's built upon tiny performances, lots and lots and lots of them, thousands of them, thousands of tiny performances designed to improve and get you to that final output. When Tyson Fury inevitably takes off Anthony Joshua's head, like the reality of that is that that's not, he's not getting into the ring for the first time and having this huge moment. He's punched hundreds of thousands of bags or they've yeah. run thousands and thousands of miles. So they've sprinted mm, mm. and sprinted and sprinted thousands and thousands of times. So it's not one singular great act that everyone seems to focus on. It's, it's the tiny things. It's doing the right. tiny things yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's doing it right every single time you perform, every yeah. single day. It's about getting up early. Resilience is not one thing. It's a habit. It's a habit of things. Ah, uh, okay. And that was it. So that was just my point that we that how we how we perceive resilience is, is often quite wrong. Okay. See, to me, the reason this is so fascinating is because I'm noticing all of these links. You're clearly very, very passionate about this, and you're also very good at it. Your experience, which helps a lot, but it's a lot of weight to almost say, let me create this whole new role based on mental well-being and resilience, and let me also add this to my career, you know. That takes a big shift. And so I'd love to understand a bit more about your mental health journey and what within that journey kind of made you say, let me make this shift to help other people and help my peers in this way. Yeah, I think I think for me that it, it did start at the rugby club. Mm. So I was having some some real difficulties based around you know a lot of childhood trauma, a lot of uh, a lot of difficulties, and a lot of weight and baggage that I've been carrying for a long period of time. And you know the inev- inevitable um, stuff from from military service from sort of two thousand and six to that two thousand and sixteen era. Um, and so when I then started working with these lads and I could see such a positive effect I could have on them, it really kind of inspired me as a coach, but I kind of more of a mentor than a coach. Mm. I, you know, I, I like to approach people on a holistic level, you know, what, what do you want to okay. achieve or how are we going to achieve that? Well, actually, okay, well, how much water are you drinking? How much sleep are you getting? What's the relationships mm-hmm. like in your life? Coach me is very formal and it's focusing on that that individual thing, that very specific performance, that very specific place they want to get to. But for them to get to that, I think you need to take a holistic approach and look at them, which to me says mentor, like you're more of a mentor there. Like what's going on in your life, you know, because well-being underpins performance. You can't expect somebody to to be a gold medalist. You can't expect somebody to be a top try scorer if they've got really toxic relationships Mm. in their lives. You know, if their amygdala is constantly going to be thrown out glucocorticoid cortisol around the brain because subconsciously they're worried about their relationships. It's really damaging. It's going to then prevent them from being able to focus our attention in their prefrontal cortex. And more specifically to that, their dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and being able to use logic and reasoning to be able to perform at a high level because they've got all this, mm. this toxic 
cortisol from around their brain because they've got a really bad relationship in their life. So actually, to get people to perform to a high level, you need to look at them as a full package. What's going on in this person's life? How are they living? What are they doing? What are they feeding? What are they reading? What are they putting into their body every day? What's their relationship size? What's their romantic relationships like? What's their education like? What's their background? What's their upbringing? You know, what's the environmental factors affecting their attitudes, behaviors, and beliefs? Now, all of a sudden, you want an athlete to perform to a high level, but you need to talk about what's your relationship like with your dad? Like, you know, how did you grow up? The requirements of, a, of an athlete, of an individual who comes from a, a high socioeconomic demographic, is very, very different to an athlete mm. or an individual who comes from a low one. And so I kind mm. of identified mm. exactly, that yeah. being from a low socioeconomic background. And so I kind of identified that and then began to really connect more with the soldiers that I was coaching and then began to identify the fact that actually there's a real hole in the mental health, mental resilience world. And that hole needs to be filled by people who can speak the language, people who have done their, got the t-shirt, but also have got the formal education and can speak their language. Language barrier, conscious and unconscious bias is massive. It is massive in this world, and it is especially massive in, in, yeah, in the military world, right? We look at people, we look at their berets, we judge an individual's worth by their beret, by their badge, by how they carry themselves, what they look like. We do. It's because you are literally mm, taught to do so. Huge. And so when that day comes into mental health and doctors or nurses or whatever are trying to speak to an individual, it's very difficult to communicate with someone. And all they're sat there thinking there is, you've not sewn that badge on straight, or you haven't got the same color beret as me, or you haven't got a set of wings, so why should I listen to you? So very, very difficult to communicate that. So actually to sort of get around that, we need to make sure we're recruiting and using the right people for this. Now, I'm not saying whatsoever that there is not a place that there isn't a place in mental health for people who maybe don't look a certain way or for people who, you know, aren't aren't like absolute gym queens like myself, you know, prance about investing. Like I'm not saying that they're I'm not saying that, that mental health now needs to be ruled by by egos. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is that it's courses for horses. And I identified that there was this massive hole, particularly in military mental health and mental well-being, that wasn't being filled because simply soldiers couldn't relate to doctors. Like, like the majority of mental health doctors do come mm. from a privileged background. And I was really, really fortunate mm. that I got, to, um, I got to lecture at Oxford University and it was a point that I made there. Like you, the vast majority of people that come from an, an incredible level of privilege that they can't ever possibly appreciate until right and huge gap. And so actually that's kind of where I stepped into and that's what kind of led me on this mental health journey. This actually lads could relate to me, lads did speak mm. to me. I was going to unit to unit. So for two and a bit years before I was a two IC of mental resilience training, I was going unit to unit to unit doing this huge amount of delivery. And, uh, and, and people were waiting by at the end to talk to me about issues within their chain of command because I was unable to speak to them, speak to them on a level that they would understand in a way that they would understand in a way that they would find approachable, relatable human and understanding. And then being able to go to their commanding officer and saying, sir, this is the complaints from the men. And some of them were very, like, they don't feed us properly. There's not good food. The accommodation's terrible. I'm not having enough time with my family. You know, things that are genuine things when we consider mental resilience from a holistic approach that are obviously going to affect a soldier's well-being. So I was like, wow, well, there's, there's a real thing here. Like, I, I was doing it with rugby teams when members of the first team, particularly the junior members who were struggling with something, could speak to me about it because we'd be in the gym together. You know, be training together. Like, I'd play with them. We'd have a laugh. We'd talk mm. about it. They'd be able to speak to me. And then I can go to the first team training staff and go in, why is this guy mm. not? Why is this guy starting on the bench again? 
Like what he's like one of the hardest working guys we've got. He's done this, 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 and this. I think we're overlooking him. Let's give this guy a shot. Yeah. We can have these conversations. You know, and so that was very much kind of my role. And and when I left the army, that's something that I wanted to then very much emulate. I then wanted people to feel like they could approach me and they could speak to me. We could have these conversations and we could sort of doze into into resilience, we could doze into well being. And and definitely I'm finding in, in in all the environments I go to, veteran and, and corporate and athlete like people are approaching me because I, I speak their language i look a certain yeah way. they can relate to you they they feel that relationship that connection you know I, I do come from a background they find relatable and they do want to speak to me and then therefore i'm able to then have the conversations with people um the seniors to them to improve their, their resilience and their well-being and yeah it, it did take a huge amount from me at times and it has done you know there is a, a large amount of pressure there and there are clients and vulnerable individuals that can be really, really difficult to manage at times. But it's definitely, um, it's definitely been the best, the best decision that I made was to, was to actually pursue this to identify yeah. that, to identify that 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 demand. And mm. I think, well, actually, I can I can supply that, I can fulfil their needs and go in for it. Now, something you've described um, a couple of times is essentially anxiety right so you described it as kind of performance anxiety and anxiety towards an end goal and i guess i'm wondering a little bit about how much that anxiety affects the people that you've worked with to the point of causing some kind of breakdown right it sounds to me like with these little things that that we need to get right whether it's with our well-being or with what we do to strive towards goals there's all this pressure that mounts, this anxiety that mounts. And then I guess what I'm wondering is eventually, have you noticed any breakdowns? And if so, what happens when we break down, right? When the stress gets too much and we kind of start to collapse under the weight of all of all that stuff? Because it sounds like resilience helps to keep us from doing that. But inevitably, without that resilience, it will happen. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of science and, and clinical terminology that I'm going to try and, and, mm. and minimise. Or if I do use it, I'll explain to <laughs> Yeah. So when we talk about um, anxiety and that sort of breakdown, let's refer to that as what we call allostatic overload. Okay, so that's too much stress, okay. there's too much pressure. There's an excess of what's called cortisol, right, which is a glucocorticoid, but cortisol itself, okay, it is, it's a hormone, it's a neurotransmitter that reflects around the brain that, effectively causes stress it's also um, catabolic so what that means is it, is, is it sort of reverses the effect of of um photosynthesis so it breaks things down bear with me so the cortisol kind of breaks things down so it creates atrophy in a part of the brain known as the hippocampus okay and the hippocampus is linked to sort of emotional memory mm-hmm. and emotional regulation so a huge amount of cortisol attacking that can actually leave scar tissue on it okay which is why we find so many post-traumatic Stress disorders are linked so closely to memory and instigation of that memory, okay, because there's that scar tissue, so it's forged on there, oh, so it wow. actually damages. So it, so it, it, it's a catabolic, so it breaks things down, okay. Um, so, it, so um, if you think like a bodybuilder doesn't want to be catabolic, a bodybuilder wants to be anabolic. That's why they talk about anabolic steroids, okay. So it increases the protein synthesis, so actually muscles grow faster, things grow faster. The opposite of that, okay, is is catabolic. So, so. Um, uh, Cortisol itself is a, uh, it breaks things down, it reverses the, the protein synthesis, so it breaks it down 
So it creates atrophy within the hippocampus. Not only that, it damages the prefrontal cortex, specifically within the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is our logical decision-making center. There's kind of two parts, two main parts of the prefrontal cortex. One of them is the VMPFC, ventromedial, and the other is the DL dorsolateral. Now, VM, I remember this because it's very emotional. It isn't very emotional. Okay. That's our emotional decision-making, conscious decision-making, sorry. So our conscious decision-making is done within the VMPFC, and our logical decision-making process is done within the DL, which I remember as damned logical. So it's the damned logical prefrontal cortex and the very okay. emotional prefrontal cortex, right? That's how I remember them. And they kind of compete against each other to make our decision-making process. Now, we find that they, particularly the dorsolateral, gets increasingly damaged by cortisol. What does that mean? Well, now we've got a reduced amount of emotional regulation because of the damaged hippocampus because of an increase of cortisol. And now we've got a lack of um, logical decision-making processes. Hence why when people are panicked, they stop making logical decisions, right? They start okay. making instinctual decisions just to try and survive. And you look at it objectively when you don't have that emotional um, investment and you think, what? What on earth are you thinking? Yeah, what, yeah. what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> yeah. In yeah. movies, when they run towards the dinosaur or they go upstairs, why would you do that? They shut up, yeah. get out. But yeah, that's so that's effectively what's happening there. And not only that, like uh, over an extended period of time, we notice a damaged um, areas of the brain associated with dementia and associated with Alzheimer's. So an, an overexposure of stress over an extended mm, period of time mm. actually increases the likelihood of Alzheimer's and depression. Okay, so Alzheimer's and dementia. So we've got lack of okay. emotional regulation. We've got a lack of uh, of logical thought. We've got increase of Alzheimer's and, and dementia. So all pretty bad news. Okay, so you've got this excess amount of stress and anxiety. And so when we actually talk about this breakdown of behaviors, what we actually are referring to is this allostatic overload. Okay, so there has now become too much of an instigation of where this um, stress originates from, cortisol originates from, which is the amygdala. You've got the amygdala center of the brain is now pumping cortisol around, okay? And so what instigates that? How can we negate against that? Well, a fascinating study was done involving the Dalai Lama. So they got, yeah. got uh, the Dalai Lama in, and obviously ECGs have massively revolutionized our understanding of cognitive psychology and neuroscience because we can really understand what parts of the brain are involved. And so they exposed the Dalai Lama to stress and pressure, and he had an instigation of this amygdala. What the Dalai Lama, the most chilled man on the planet, had an instigation of his amygdala. But then what happened, his prefrontal cortex kicked in his reasoning and his logic, and it was very calm. I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. So then they got in sort of a control group of like 18, 20 people, and they repeated Mm. the experiment. And as you'd expect, huge instigation of reaction from their amygdala. And actually, some of them then began to have panic attacks, okay? Became overwhelmed by the amount of stress and pressure, the amount of cortisol floating around the brain. They instigated something called the HPA, which is the hypothalamic maturity adrenal gland axis, okay? So effectively, the thing that makes you panic, all right? Big heart rate, uh, freezing cold feeling in your stomach, shallow breathing, all that kind of stuff. That, that anxiety attack okay, was created by by this sort of experiment. They then kind of took took these people away with the Dalai Lama for eight weeks of breathing and mindfulness training. They then brought them back and repeated the experiment. And there was a massive, and there is numbers of it somewhere, but massive increase of activity within their prefrontal cortex and a massive reduction of activity in their amygdala. So what does that mean? It meant by mindfulness training, by breathing training, by just calm, belly breathing, focusing on the here and now and the things that they can control, which as we previously discussed, is of course their effort and their attitude. By concentrating on those two things, they were able to keep calm and stay in control. So when we talk about anxiety and the detrimental effect it has on people's lives, particularly over an extended period of time, there are a huge amount more 
of health concerns that come from an overexposure of cortisol over an extended period of time. For example, every single time your this HPA axis is instigated, one of the things that it does is it mobilizes energy stored within the muscles. What does that mean? It means that okay, you have this huge rush of adrenaline, you have this huge rush of energy. This energy doesn't go back into the muscles; it's stored as visceral fat. So now you're getting stressed and overweight. Not only that, but an instigation of this fight or flight, which is what the HPA axis is effectively, the instigation of this fight or flight creates an inflammation on the heart. That's why people who are stressed have heart attacks. Okay, you create inflammation on the heart. Not only that, it creates inflammation on the digestive system. That's why people have so much digestive discomfort when they're stressed a lot. So we're now talking about Alzheimer's, dementia, heart attacks, being overweight. Obviously, all of the negative health behaviors that come from being overweight. We're talking about a uh, inflammation of the digestive system. And we're talking about damage to the brain. We're talking about a lack of emotional regulation. And we're talking about a lack of logic and reasoning. And it all comes from a lack of understanding that the only two things that you can truly control are your attitude and your effort. Because ultimately, the whole point we have, this amygdala and this cortisol and this reaction in the first place, is from when we were cavemen and it was designed to instigate a response that would ensure our survival. We don't live in that world anymore. We're not being chased by saber-toothed tigers. We're not dancing around fires. And do you want more's a pity? More's a pity we don't dance around fires and, and, and laugh as our a survival and stick together exactly. like we should. We don't. But we should, but we don't. That's why when mm. you light a fire, so many people just come and stand around it. Why is that? That is your innate human instinct. That is your amygdala going, yeah. there is safety, there is security. You are never more yeah. mindful yeah. and relaxed and at peace than when you are stood with your friends and family around a fire just yeah. staring at it. Right. That is mindfulness. That is you are calm. You are with your friends. You're staring in the fire. You're breathing. You are in the moment. That is what that is. So effectively, can we take that? mentality that's standing around a fire staring at it with your friends and family and can we apply that to situations that are stressful like traffic like mm. emails like phone calls from bosses like managing difficult employees mm. yeah we can but it's about learning that breathing learning to stay in that present moment and learning to get into that mindset one of my absolute favorite sayings is that we cannot control what life throws at us, but we can control our response to it, right? And what I think even when we say that becomes overlooked, or I should say is often overlooked, is that that response to it, the way I tend to look at it, is that it brings us back down to earth, right? That saying that someone is down to earth. The things that bring us back down to earth, connected to the things that we know will actually make us happy, right? And you talked about external things and and placing weight on ourselves from as a result of the external. Yeah. Those never satisfy yeah. us. Those never cause us uh, or give us satisfaction, appreciation, enjoyment, or or joy in general. There was a really interesting. I think it's I think it's a documentary called Billionaires. A really interesting piece of media wow. that essentially uncovered that billionaires are actually some of the most unhappy people on the planet because they're yeah. so far disconnected from the enjoyment of right. enjoying your food, spending time with people who you really love and who you know love you, right? Like friends and family. They're so disconnected from that because they're in this world of, you know, being in charge of people and working all day or whatever else. And that just brings them totally out of this ability to say, 
regardless of what happens to me, I can choose yeah. to do the things that actually put me in touch with myself and make me happy, right? And I just find that so fascinating. And so what I'd love to explore with you for the next couple of minutes is what do we do to be in touch with that? What do we do or create and the narratives we might even be creating within our within our head, right? The storylines that we're creating or that we're disregarding maybe, that allow us to be more in touch with what you just described, that allow us to make the decisions about how we connect and what we connect with so that we don't just let this tide of whatever life is throwing at us overwhelm us. Right. So to kind of build on a point there, a really fascinating study was done about what salary do you think studies are shown brings the most amount of satisfaction to a person's life how much Ooh, that is fast is this in us dollars or in pounds uh in pounds all right oh i don't know oh it depends on where you live maybe like 60 i'm, I'm assuming it's not actually very high <laughs> 36 oh wow that is crazy that is yeah, insane 36, i think it's between 36 and 44 thousand pounds the ultimate amount of money to uh so you're earning enough money so you can live and you can pop out on holiday. Obviously, there's like a huge amount of variables to that. Like if you're on £36,000, you live in the centre of London, are you going to be able, you're not right, even yeah. going to be able to live yeah. off of that, right? Yeah, yeah. Of course. There's, there are like, and it does it does state, it wasn't like some pokey um, survey, you know, it did did genuinely do a research into it and said, listen, this is how it pays out as a national average, but there are some huge things to consider. Like if yeah. you've got eight children, £36,000 is pretty huge string. Yeah. I kind of worked out that the average was between thirty six and forty four thousand pounds because it's enough money to live. It's enough money to live reasonably comfortably, and it's enough money to afford certain things. Now, certainly, growing up um, on my street, there weren't many people earning that kind of money. But thirty six to forty four thousand pounds is, is considered the optimum amount. And to sort of again reinforce the point you just said, Bill Gates has just got divorced. Like, I, mm. I, I'm not disrespecting the guy, but if money provided all the happiness in the world, he's got one hundred and thirty billion of them. And and his marriage is still falling apart. So clearly, mm. money is not everything. Now, I've always said that you are only allowed to say money isn't everything if you if you've had in a period if you've had a period of your life where you've had none of it. Okay. Like, unless you've been homeless, yeah. you don't get to say yeah. that that money isn't everything. It'd be like me saying that racism isn't an issue. Yeah. Like, what do you know about it? Like, I am so white. When people meet me, they say hello, <laughs> but what they're thinking is. That's the color I want for my bathroom. Or they think Casper's <laughs> put on, right? So, like, I don't get to comment about racism not being an issue, yeah. okay? In the same way that people who have never been poor don't get to say that money isn't an issue. So, you are right. But how do we create a narrative whereby we're happy no matter what money we're earning? Like, how do we create that within ourselves? And you could label all day and go, well, actually, you know, it's when people are dying that they realize what's important to them. And, but we don't want to wait until that point. Like, I don't want to wait until I'm on my deathbed to go, oh, do you know what? I wish I'd spent more time with exactly. my daughter and less time trying to earn money. Like, I don't want that. Mm. So it's about understanding being here in the now. It is mm. simply not worrying about things that could happen. Because effectively, anxiety is overestimating the likelihood of the worst thing happening, multiplying that by um, underestimating your ability to cope with it. So actually being able to do away with that and just think, well, I'm sat here. I'm healthy, I'm warm, I've got a roof over my head. And again, it just comes back to 
mindfulness, it comes back to understanding that you are living here in the now. And if you've got everything you need, that you need, because bearing in mind things, all we need is heat, food, light, a bit of oxygen. Yeah. If you've got those things, then ideal. And then we can build upon that. Mm. In the same way that an athlete builds upon a very basic performance to reach that top end, you do the same with your emotional happiness and the same with your fulfillment. Have you been fed? Have you had enough sleep? Are you spending time with positive people? Are you moving in a direction that makes you happy? Oh, okay. Now, now we're starting to actually get that level of fulfillment. Now we're starting to do away with these things that are creating all that anxiety. Adoristic psychology teaches us that the key to happiness is finding what you are good at and using it to benefit the people around mm. you. So yeah. are you benefiting? Are you, are you using your talent to benefit the world? Yeah. Because I guarantee this, if you're fed, watered, getting enough sleep, eating the right food, spending time with the right people yeah. and using what you are good at to benefit those people around you, you're going to start feeling a lot less anxiety and you're going to start feeling a lot more fulfillment in your life. What you just said really strikes a personal chord for me because my life has been one where I've I've seen and in a way at certain points lived pretty much every end of that kind of spectrum that you described a minute ago, right? So I've had times, especially in my youth, where we were so poor that we were quite literally homeless and rough sleeping. And then I've had times when right whether it's through people I know who had more money or I spent time with them or went to a party, you know, it was like not the richest of the rich, but it was rich, you know, it was up there. So, and yeah. I've and everything in between. And so I have either yeah. seen or personally lived pretty much everything on the spectrum at some point. And that figure yeah. that you gave us yeah. for the happiest amount that makes you the happiest. I mean, that, that is going to stick with me because that is the place where, I've seen that people, it, may, it makes so much sense. I've seen that people are comfortable enough to be able to be mindful. It's almost like if you go above that amount of money or of, of, of any, I'm placing so much external value on this, you start to place too much external value on, or too much value on the external, I should say. But as you said, kind of at the beginning, the external isn't what helps you perform it isn't what helps you make make you successful and i wonder if that's because the external isn't enough of a motivator right essentially the the things that make you happiest are the things that are the internal and uh, the things that make you satisfied yeah. and give you the basics and what you need and i wonder if, if the brain is linked in that way right in the exact same way you cannot succeed if you're too yeah. focused on the external you cannot be happy if you're too focused on the external and to me, that leaves us with one big area, one really clear area of learning as a takeaway, which is what can you control, which like we've said is what is how you respond. Right. And what is that based on? It's based on mindfulness and the things that bring you back down to earth, mm -hmm. right? To me, that is fascinating as a takeaway. Yeah. And that is essentially the point, like focus on what you can control not on what you think you can control. And there are things that you can influence is where people get, get all caught up in, a, in their spokes about it. But there are things I can influence. Yeah, there's things that you can influence, but you also need to understand what degree of influence they have. And, and if something costs you your peace, it has now become too expensive. And that's mm. always a big lesson. A big thing to I take love that. Is try and control what you can control, which is your attitude and your effort to influence the outcome that you want. But the moment it costs you your peace, it has now become too expensive. It's not worth it at all. To leave us off, 
I'd love to know what advice you would give to your younger self, right? For all the young leaders uh, listening to this now, what advice do you think you would give to your younger self? So, I mean, if the advice I would give to, to my younger self would be uh, like, you'll sit with your, mm. you'll sit with your anger long enough. You'll eventually realize that it's mm. grief. And that was a big thing for me. Like I was angry for such a long period of time and it, it held me back in so many different um, examples there that I, you know, I'd be here all day right. talking about the amount of things that I've wasted because I just chose, chose, chose violence, chose anger, chose pushing people away. Mm. Um, my advice, my advice to young leaders would be that you are your people, like the, the, the greatest leaders of history, from your from your Captain Winters of Panda Brothers to Napoleon mm. to your Genghis Khan's. Like they they made it where they made it because of their people. Don't ever think that the mm. leader is bigger than the people. You're not, and they never will be it's important that you understand that. And and that I think is, is the most important part mm. of leadership. And it's often the most forgotten part is that leaders forget that it's the people that get them where they are. Officers get where they are because of the soldiers, yeah. not the yeah. other way around. Yeah. Oh, that to me, that's a really beautiful takeaway. And I think it really nicely rounds out how, uh, how much weight we've placed in this conversation and rightly so on mm the environment you create for yourself because your people create the environment for you to be successful. And I personally believe that the best leaders will be making everyone around them a success yeah. along with them, right? If that, if that kind of makes sense, you'll be working together to be improving both yourselves and whatever you're working on. And to me, I think that's a really nice kind of way to round out this conversation we've had because it's one of those things that brings us down to earth mm -hmm. despite all these issues, the stress, the anxiety, the breakdowns that we can face. That is a great place to leave off. Jim, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about you, reach you, and, and anything else you, you kind of want to plug here? Um, yeah, so my, my social media is James Elliott Official. I'm nice and easy to find. I don't tend to use uh, Facebook for business, but obviously I have a LinkedIn as well as, as James Elliott. And yeah, I just, please do reach out to me. Um, you'll see that I've got quite a, quite a large social media following on, on Instagram. So um, please do feel free to scroll through the stuff that I teach and preach on there and, and talk about and the guests that I have on and any questions or any further involvement, please do. You know, I'm always up for working collaboratively with people and seeing what we can produce and where we can go and what we can do. Amazing. Jim, thank you so much. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. Sharing our stories like this can be a little bit difficult, a little bit challenging, but we just find it so important for leaders and especially young leaders to know that they are not alone in experiencing mental health challenges and that there are things we can do about it. A final reminder before we close that across this season, I am running a giveaway. All you need to do is fill out a really quick survey. It helps me out a lot. And if you can, I'd also love for you to leave a review of it on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. It genuinely means a lot to me. I've been Seven and this has been Lost and Searching. And we will be back very, very soon.